Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the charming archmage, Shane Beeps. Stan, we've done it. We've reached six months of the dive down. Congratulations, my friend. Uh, we're now very famous. Mazel tov to you and yours. Shane, what's what's your favorite price spike of the last six months? Mine's coming up just after the breakdown. Can't wait to talk about it. Well, price spike. Man, you threw me a curveball there, Dave. I don't know. Leyland of the Void? Mm, that's my least favorite one. Because <laughs> I don't have any. Also with us here in Chicago... The Arisen Necropolis, Dave Harburger. We're still working on building those bricks, my man. I'm I'm slowly rising up, but not quite yet. You gotta rise up. <laughs> Ravnica wasn't built in a day. That's true. This necropolis will not be built in one day. Doesn't matter how many zombies you throw at it. Last but not least, it's the Feaster of Fools, Zach Culhan. I start out small, but if I eat enough humans, I can get pretty big, so pretty apt. <laughs> All right, Dave is going to take a quick leave of absence to deal with some internal affairs, but then he'll be back probably midway through the breakdown. He just stopped by to say hello. Bye, Dave. Hello. Goodbye. On this week's episode, we're breaking down the MTGO Modern Challenge. Then we dive into the mailbag and answer a host of listener questions sent our way by fans and patrons all about Modern Horizons. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to our newest patrons, Daniel K, Spencer H, Brandon L, Spot Red, and Starman. Thank you all for supporting the Dive Down. If you're hearing this and you haven't joined our Patreon yet, that's okay. But if you want to get in on the ground floor of this exciting business opportunity, <laughs> you can support the show too by finding us at patreon.com slash the dive down. It's not a pyramid, it's an upside down funnel, despite what anyone else tells you. <laughs> Yeah, we're really close to our uh, $200 stretch goal, y'all. So just a few more people trickling in. We love these you know, dollar Patreons. If that's all you have to throw our way, we appreciate it. Give as much or as little as you'd like. But of course, the show is always free. Honestly, I feel like the Dive Down Super Secret Slack channel basically pays for itself because there's always a party happening on Slack in the Dive Down Nation. Yeah, it's been real fun to see all the new brews coming out of MH and people posting their nonsense and critiquing and helping out, etc. Yeah, so fun just to talk about the changing landscape of modern as it happens. Right now, things are in flux, so it's it's good to have a cool community of people to chat with. All right, let's jump over to our reporter, Zach Colhan, who is live in London with some very exciting news. The queen has abdicated, it turns out. <laughs> mm, not again. <laughs> Which queen? So, I want to ride my bicycle. Yeah, Freddie Mercury. It's back from the dead and has abdicated. <laughs> Yeah, so on July 12th, it's official, the London Mulligan rule will go into effect across all formats. So remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about how quickly it felt that the Vancouver Mulligan went into effect, but then we, we looked at it, it as actually like something like four months or something like that. And now this is happening somewhat more quickly than that, and I think more quickly than a few people anticipated. Yeah, my cold shot was with the release of Modern Horizons, so this is a little bit later, but I think, honestly, with a core set, it makes more sense. This is coinciding with the release of Core Set 2020. So it makes more sense, you know, a lot, a lot, of, pe- a lot of old players, a lot of enfranchised people reinvest themselves into the game at core sets, and a lot of new players join as well. So it makes sense that there would be this big rule change and people are, you know, relearning the rules or committing themselves to higher level play. 
Sure. When all those people show up for pre-release, you know, they'll exactly. have some, you know, a, a new and honestly for limited, much better mulligan. Right. I played my Modern Horizon pre-release at an LGS with the London Mulligan rule. Very cool. Some shops are opting in. Basically, if the store wants to do it, they're allowed to. Yeah, it's their prerogative, yeah. That's my prerogative. And it was great. For Limited, everyone was absolutely correct. It was awesome. Mulliganing was better. I don't think that's anyone's surprise. So just to recap, the London Mulligan differs from the current one. So the current one where you go down one each time and then scry if you keep... The London Mulligan, you draw seven no matter what, but you put cards at the bottom based on the number of times you've mulliganed. So if you mulligan once, you put one card back, mulligan twice, put two cards back, and there's no scry. And so Watsi is saying that the goal of the new Mulligan is to try to make games more competitive. Basically, you have fewer non-games where, you know, if you mull to five, you only are seeing, you see six cards, you see five cards as you mulligan, and you have fewer and fewer cards to even keep at that point. So they want people's decks to actually function and have a good mix of lands and spells. So I think, you know, that's the goal. What do you guys think about it, for modern especially? I'm personally very excited for it. Part of me buying into and playing Mono Red Prison was the anticipation of this rule, as it makes a deck that relies on rituals a little more consistent and better. So it'll just be nice to be more reliably able to hit my blood moons and chalices when I need them in matchups where I know I need them. So this is the sort of thing where decks also are able to get their artifact and enchantment hate more consistently. So I'm able to get my prison down, but you're also able to get out of it more often. So even though I want to have a quote-unquote non-game, you still have a fighting chance. I think it's good overall, and I'm really excited to start playing with it. Totally agreed. It feels awesome. I prefer the London Mulligan to most other magic rules. I do think, though, there's going to be some growing pains, without a doubt. Maybe it's not immediate, but decks are going to emerge that are a little too consistent, a little too strong, that rhyme a little too much with shmeo-shmorm, perhaps, and we'll have to figure out solutions to that, either through the meta and figuring it out as players, or through R&D and the banhammer. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this when we were testing it uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago at this point. I think it's ov- wow. overall, it's, it feels like a good thing. I mean, it feels good. You can still put together a decent starting hand even after mulligans, which before kind of felt like this death spiral. You know, each mulligan you took give you fewer and fewer cards to select from. And I think the London Mole remedies that quite a bit. But it's also kind of a bit scary when you consider the decks that just want to have a certain combination of cards versus having as many sort of card resources in the first right. place. So, you know, we have things like Tron, like Dredge, like this Hogak Bridgevine we're going to be discussing, the looming <laughs> threat of like Neo Brand. I get the feeling that like Modern is moving towards being a little bit more broken than ever. And it doesn't really seem like Horizons put fair tools in people's hands to combat that. And we're going to talk about that in some of these listener questions later. And I'm not just saying that because of like the Hogak, Altar, and such being in Horizons, but it was due to the lack of what seemed like cards designed to slow the format down. So, you know, I agree with Stan. I think there there's probably going to be some growing pains. Do you guys think there's going to be any kind of upcoming bans? Like, do you think there's just going to be bans? I think there has to be. And they talked about how they don't want to do preemptive bans. And that's sort of the, the price of that is there's it's going to be... If not ugly, then like, oh, for a while, there's going to be a clear deck where it's, oh, when the next BR happens, this is the deck that's going to get hit. I think that's the price you pay to not have preemptive bans. And I think this is the overall right call, even if it leads to a few months of, oh, uh-huh, Hogek again. Mm-hmm, 100 power on turn three. Mm-hmm, very cool. So like, we'll go into that later. But I think that 
that's unfortunately the cost of entry in order to have more responsible and not reactionary bands. Yeah, I think that's smart, Zach. I, th- I think it's probably the best policy for them to not think that they know what's best in a proactive way, but they want to react to how the players respond to format changes and respond to new variables in the metagame and largely allow the format to solve itself through the players. So we'll see what happens, but I think broadly it's the right move. I think it's the right move for the more popular formats of, of standard and what's played on arena. So it's the right move. Yeah, I agree with everything you guys are saying. One of the things that I find interesting about what Shane just said with regard to Modern Horizons didn't really print anything that would slow the format down. I think, if anything, the opposite is true. You know, apart from Hogak, we got the forces, which, if anything, are printed answers to the anticipated nonsense that is down the road. Yeah, let's save that for the the breakdown there, Stan. I want the people to know as soon as possible. So we'll be talking about the modern challenge happened over this weekend that included a Modern Horizons card, which went legal a little sooner than I think we expected them to. Oh, yeah, that was really fast. I did not expect them to be instantly in like a, you know, a a modern challenge, which are pretty good size competitive events. Yeah, it really gives new meaning to (laughs) pre-release. Nice. I didn't even know that they were selling boxes during pre-release weekend now. Like people were cracking packs. I thought I'd wait till next week. Yeah, they've been doing that for a little bit. Uh, It happened right away. I queued into a league, I believe, on Saturday, and my opponent's turn one play was a Fiery Islet, and that was just, okay, wow, this is a powerful deck. I'm going to lose right now. This is not very good for me. Surprise. Yeah, exactly. So we have 32 decks, all of which went 5-2 or better in the seven-round tournament, and we're going to go over the top eight decks below, and there's going to be a little bit of repetition, a little bit of a pattern you might notice. (laughs) So Blue Eye Control won, and they had two Force of Negation in the main board, not the sideboard, so that's interesting. Second, we have Hogak Vine, which we'll discuss in a minute. New deck. New new deck that kind is of. that I'm sure we will be talking about nonstop, but we talked about Phoenix for a little bit. Oh my gosh. Can't wait. Third, we had Eldrazi Tron, which was ready for this event with a full four Leyland of the Void in the sideboard, which is, you know, just a cool two hundred bucks in paper. Not a big deal. <laughs> Fourth, we have another Hogak Vine deck. Fifth, we have Mono Red Phoenix, which is running three of the Sunbaked Cannon, which is the red white canopy land or the horizon land the ones that uh pay life to add mana and then you can crack to draw a card later yeah and they they have no need for white mana they're just running it strictly for the cycling it's cheaper than the blue red one i guess in six we have humans which are running two of the ranger captain of eos in the main and then two of the collector oof in the side in seventh we have a familiar face and more hogak vine that was piloted by uh, sodek who's a known dredge streamer and he pivoted almost completely off of proper dredge and is going more towards this hogak vine which shows how powerful he thinks it is right and how much he loves graveyard strategies and then finally taking up the rear in eighth place we have esper death shadow with two on earth a silent clearing which is the black white canopy horizon land and then three Ranger Captain of Eos in the main. And then a Kaya's Guile in the side, or Kaya's Guile, if you will, in the side. Yeah, so we're seeing some new cards show up already. Yeah, one thing I noticed was in the top 32 decks, there were 12 Hogak Bridgevine decks. Not a big deal. That's wow. normal. That's, that is what normal tournaments are. <laughs> no, it's not. That's a big deal. <laughs> it's like Dark Phoenix. Is that is that a reference to something? To a movie series and a modern meta we just lived through. (laughs) Yeah, so there were quite a few 
new cards in these decks. I mean, of course, Hodak, Hodak, Hogak. Yeah, Hogak. the Hogak. Of course, yeah, the Hogak Ridgevine decks have most of the same ones. You know, they're running Carrion Feeder, Hogak, Altar of Dementia, Shenanigans. But we saw some new cards show up elsewhere as well, like in uh, Esper Death Shadow. Running, you know, the the Captain of Eos, you know, the the Unearth. It seemed like a really smart way to build the deck right now. It's it's super grindy. Like it's really focused on using your paths, your fatal pushes. Yeah, I mean, path is a big deal, right? How often do we see Death Shadow decks running path? I don't know if any pictures on the Unearth surgery with the Ranger Captain of Eos. The getting that ETB again is very good, and sacking it, like you get it all. You you get to have it all with that, and I don't th- I don't think we caught that when we talked about our set. Yeah, so. yeah, I don't know how we missed that one. We kind of I think we just kind of forgot that black white mid range decks could even exist in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I think sometimes we can have tunnel vision where we think about a card in only certain archetypes, and then someone yeah. goes, what about this? And it's, oh, yeah, that seems like a tier one deck too, okay. Yeah, so this this can really just remove opposing threats and then just eventually grind through and stick and protect your own creature and ride that to victory. Like, you know, those three ranger captains get your death shadows, unearth, especially when combined with snapcaster mage, you get all that recursion. You know, you get to recur your spells and your creatures through the unearth. You, you they've got the two to fairy time raveler main to really provide that additional protection during your turn. This seems like the kind of deck that's going to spread out their graveyard the way Dredge does, because they need to see all the cards at once, so it's like, so this is my graveyard, but it is divided into creatures and spells, and that's going to be okay. I was really surprised that Esper Shadow was cutting the Gurmog Anglers, because that used to be such an important part of the Shadow player's plan. I, I think a big part of that is uh, the, how they're using their cards in their graveyard as a resource, where they're, if they're snapping spells back or they're returning stuff via unearth or whatever you don't really have the ability to get rid of it and i guess you can with fetch lands but maybe that's only once and you're not really you really want to cast those cards again and not have them be in exile i mean they are running two anglers just to shave down i mean still be able to cast the big fish but they don't have like you know three or four like they used to yeah yeah i think it's an interesting build we'll see if it sticks around we'll see if it gets tuned a little bit more i'm sure it will but it, it it came in came in second yeah, props to Dave. He on the set review episode called out Ranger Captain as a de- as a Death Shadow card, and yeah, he was I right. Believe I laughed at him, so my apologies, Big Daddy. No, yeah, yeah, I made fun of him. I, I chuckled. Back. I, I, I would never laugh at Dave. I laughed with Dave. So Shane, the deck I really want to talk about is this eleventh place blue red control. It, it's really Blue Moon. I'm not sure why it was called Blue Red Control, but cutting the Jaces for two Narset which honestly I think is unreal and very unexpected because Jace was a win condition and Narset like is just a value card. Also four Serum Visions in a time where Narsets are everywhere. I feel like that's kind of a liability. So I'm really impressed that the pen sword pulled it off. This person plays blue red decks a ton and to great results. But this one has a lot of curveballs for me. I mean, I was pretty excited by this list when I saw it. And it was definitely enough to make me want to try to sleeve up this deck. It definitely made me want to ask you as a follow-up, Stan, why you thought that Archmage's Charm fit in blue-red specifically, as opposed to other blue-based control decks like blue-white and things like that. I thought it was an excellent spell to cast on turn three when you don't have Blood Moon. And I also think the card is super castable with Blood Moon because the deck can play Cryptic Command with a Blood Moon on the board by the sheer amount of islands and fetching that it can do in the early parts of the game. 
So the Pensword here even has that one of Prismatic Vista, I think, to help find those islands when they know they're on the Blood Moon plan. No, exactly. Blue-Eye Control has to aggressively fetch out basics if they think you're a Blood Moon deck, and that really makes you not be able to cast three blue cards on turn three. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I love the idea of having Narset over Jace right now, I guess. I know that Jace is a win con and all that kind of stuff, but Narset is just so good, and it's a mana cheaper, and it's just kind of like, seems like what we're doing in Modern right now is realizing how many times people try to draw extra cards on us and just stopping them. Yeah, I think also tapping out on turn three feels a little better than tapping out on turn four. Yeah. That makes sense. How about the two of Magmatic Magmatic Sinkhole? This is one of the first appearances of that card as well. That is the amount you predicted appearing as well. So two of in a list that's going to uh, buff up their removal suite. So, hey, you called it. And not run any other Delve cards. And hey, guess what? All of Blue's good Delve cards were banned except for uh, Set Adrift. So. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm into it. You know, with all the fetching that you're doing in a deck like this and all the cheap cantrips that you're casting, it's pretty easy to fill up the yard. Not having to deal with logic knots and having Archmage's Charm instead, I think, is a nice solution to keep that graveyard resource from getting tapped out too soon. Ultimately, I like that Magmatic Sinkhole can be a mana cheaper than Harvest Pyre, and I think that's really the big difference. And as we mentioned, and we'll continue to mention, Narset's running around three fairies running around who knows who else is running around ashiok there's ashioks in modern yeah is it really? the oh yeah. yeah i mean the, the three mana the three mana ashioks getting run in sideboards all over the place these days all oh all gosh. over the place he's yeah. great against phoenix they yeah even in like jun decks or uh rock decks they're running because they can cast it for the two black they don't care shane they don't care they just don't they, they do not care they're just playing all sorts of planeswalkers so yeah, in, in the spirit of blue-red spells decks, we should talk really quick about this 17th place blue-red Delver of Secrets pile. Yeah, also running a Singleton Magmatic Sinkhole, that red value. And four Archmage's Charm. That's wild. Four. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Done. Well, this is heavy, heavy blue. Like this uh, blue-red Delver deck... Um, I think it has like 21 blue sources. Big blue. So they can definitely hit it. They don't have any mountains here. All of their lands either nope. tap for blue or fetch. Yeah, I mean, I think this deck is is really interesting as well. And actually, one of the first decks that I saw uh, was on Twitter by someone who posted up a deck like this that only had Pyromancer as the the win condition and did not have Delver of Secrets. It was more of a blue-red spells deck where it was all in on young Pyromancer. And uh, that was the first one where I also saw many Archmage's Charms in the deck. I think it had three in that one. It might have had four. And immediately I was kind of like, oh yeah, maybe in a deck where you can go, like Shane said, very, very blue and just have a splash of red for a couple of kill conditions and some lightning bolts, maybe that would be, uh, that's good enough to get there. And that's kind of what this deck is. So, you know, whether or not Delver is good, I think is always a question that comes up, you know, every time new cards come out, I think that this kind of shell could be good just because of Pyromancer. Well, I think also this deck did well because they predicted the weekend's metagame. It had four Leyline of the Void in the sideboard. Yeah. It's almost like 
Hodak Vine was the worst kept secret <laughs> in week one. It definitely became that way on, uh, you know, I know that there were some rumblings early from like secret kind of dredge Bridgevine groups that this deck had been discovered, but the lists weren't out there. And then seriously, I feel like four or five hours later, there was suddenly a yeah. screenshot on Twitter. And then there were all the gifts and everything of people just being shocked at how many zombies token that could, zombie tokens that could put into play uh, so early. I mean, 100 power on turn three, right? I mean, it's realistic. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But before we get to that, I did want to touch on Eldrazi Tron with you guys, because I feel like Eldrazi Tron went from being pretty much nowhere to like the Karn, the great creator shell of choice. And I'm curious what you guys are thinking about that. I saw it at the SCG uh, Invitational. It appears here. It did very well at the event. It actually, what, came in like third place. It also was prepared for the event with the Leyline of the Void, of course, but it seems like it's doing quite well. I mean, unfortunately, I've never had a chance to play this deck because of the chalices and things yeah, like that, exactly. which is just hard. To, you know, I've, I've played chalice decks online, but never in paper. And you guys know my, my great love of Tron. <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. Um, that's huh. true. That's true. Dave's favorite deck. Yeah, exactly. So I've never taken a shot on this one. I don't know. I feel like saying that it's it's the Karn Great Creator deck of choice is probably a stretch. Maybe it was for this weekend. Um, I think that the 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 big thing here was just whether Chalice was good or not, right? And so that's that's yeah. why you run this kind of shell with Karn in it. Yeah, I think Odrazi Tron is a really consistent and good deck, and it's popularity in the meta quote-unquote isn't really related to its power level i think it's always been really good and maybe just what people want to play i think this deck has been good and reality smasher is going to continue to be good i i like it i honestly thinking about buying my mimics and everything else after this podcast yeah i mean if you have chalices you should buy this deck i really and you know i do yeah exactly so my theory is shane about why this is the karn deck of choice is because I have a feeling that in all the other decks that could cast him and we're trying that plan, whether it be Amulet, whether it be Green Tron, he was more of a liability than people realized because they were giving up really valuable sideboard slots. Yeah. E-Tron's sideboard wasn't as important (laughs) as it was to original Tron. Yeah. Their sideboard was all this monocolored cards. Yeah. So I feel like in this case, he really elevated the deck in a way that he was almost a liability in the other ones. So let's let's talk a little bit about how the, our latest boogeyman in the format, Hogak Bridgevine, works. I think there are some people who are still unconvinced about this or think that this was a flash in the pan or that people are unprepared or not ready for it. People are bringing four Leyland of the Void in the sideboard, and this deck fought through that, and it was still a thing. So I think we just need to talk about this. I'm scared, guys. <laughs> yeah like as zach has said a few times it can it can it can put 100 power in the battlefield in turn three a little bit scary so can can we talk called shots for a second yeah do it stan, before we even talk about it stan and i stan and i both called the key cards and said they were going to end up in Bridgevine. i believe now there's no universe where stan and i thought that this deck was going to do this as a result of these two things being in I there disagree. but i definitely thought bridge uh, alter dementia had a shot to make it in Bridgevine just for the self mill Dave, for the record, I kind of predicted it would be like this, and I'm pretty sure what I said was, I can't wait to find out which deck is the first one to get Hogak out on turn two. Oh, yeah, yeah. You look at a card like that, and you just know it's going to get busted in half. No, definitely. Did you guys see the run on the card price on on Hogak, too? $50 today at one point? (laughs) It was like a dollar on 
I don't know, Thursday of last week. And then it was, and then it was $12 over the weekend. And I bought four copies when it was $12. And then this morning on Monday, I took a look at, at some retailers online. It was $36 a piece. Just brutal. I don't know. Any of you guys looked at this card and thought it was not worth two bucks. You're all crazy. I just was being lazy and didn't didn't buy, you know, and was also kind of like, well, I'm going to buy Archmage's Charms instead because I like blue, but I just keep getting punished yeah. for liking blue. No, man, follow that instinct. Blue's the best color. That's why Watsy gives us all the best cards. It's yeah. red. Let's talk about this works a little bit. I think that's actually a nice, perfectly fine bridge into this. So, Oh, wait, a bridge from below into this? or <laughs> So what you want to do with this deck is get some cards into the graveyard get those cards back out of the graveyard, make a ton of power. So you're using cards like our old Faithful, Faithless Looting, Citrus Supplier, Insolent Neonate to do the first part. And then the new reprint of Altar of Dementia allows you to sacrifice creatures like Citrus Supplier and others to mill yourself some more, or eventually also mill your opponent out of the game. And Carrion Feeder also acts as one of our newly reprinted sack outlets as well. So what Hogak does is... He's pretty easily castable, or it's pretty easily castable by turn two fairly often. And casting creatures, both from your hand and out of the graveyard, allows Vengevine to also be recurring to the battlefield as well. And so that's kind of like your more straightforward beatdown plan. Get your Hogax out, get your Vengevines out, beat people down, you know, blood gas, things like that. But of course, there's also the, the bridge from below part, which makes a 2-2 zombie every time a non-token creature on your battlefield goes into the graveyard. And that's only when Bridge from Below is in your graveyard. So all this milling is hopefully stocking your graveyard with Bridge from Belows. So if you have two bridges, you make two 2-2 zombies and so on. And so with Gravecrawler, it can be cast with a single black mana from the graveyard if you have another zombie on the battlefield, which is pretty easy to accomplish with this deck. And so then you can do things like sack this to Carrion Feeder, growing Carrion Feeder, while also creating 2-2 zombies due to your bridges. So then then on recast of Gravecrawler, you're also triggering your Venge Finds, or if you're sacrificing things to the altar, you're filling the graveyard with hopefully more bridges from below and Venge Vines to then trigger... Um, and then you also get to do some combos like this, where you're sacrificing Hogak with the altar, and that gets you eight cards into your graveyard. And then you can use five of those cards to delve. And if you had two bridges from below, you get the zombies to convoke Hogak out. So you can basically repeat, flip your whole deck over, use the leftover cards and zombies uh, to mill your opponent instead of yourself. And so really this deck, like Arclight Phoenix before it, as something we're going to probably talk about for the next five weeks, has a bunch of different ways to be attacking the opponent. So you can have your beatdown plan with like Vengevine and Hogak. You can mill people. You have a bunch of different creatures attacking at different times. And so you know people are like, well, can't you just surgical things? Or can't you just run surgical? And it's like, well, if you surgical the bridge from below, you still have the beatdown plan. If you surgical Hogak, you can beat down with Vengevine, Gravecrawlers, Bloodgast, things like that. So it's kind of hard to attack in a, in a point fashion like that. It's like a, a better zombie hunt, right? I actually don't know how zombie hunt works. So With a no treasure hunt and zombie infestation, we've talked about in the podcast before. I mean, we have. I still don't really understand how Remember it Remember that classic deck dive we did on zombie hunt, Shane? It was a, a episode 24B. Our most popular episode ever. 
so basically one of the only real ways that seems to do well are full graveyard hate cards like Leyline of the Void, Rest in Peace, some early Ravenous Traps are, are a lot better, but still not kind of an end-all be-all. Um, I know that uh, Ensnaring Bridge can do some work against this, but this deck can operate so quickly and put you know, 10, 12 power on the board on turn two pretty easily, and that's a lot to face down. So Grafdigger's Cage pretty much does almost nothing. They still have options, right? Like, they can still just beat you down with a ton of zombies from the bridge triggers, though they yeah. may not be getting creatures back. I guess you also have Nihil Spellbomb as a possible answer, but it's a little slow. You have Ravenous Trap, too, although the timing on that one's a little iffy. You have to really make sure that you got them dead to rights or when they can't do it, some more silly activations. I mean, it's like we talked about in our Dredge episode is like the, the one and done ones like, you know, Nihil Spellbomb, Relic, uh, Tormod's Crypt. They're only so good for so long. Yeah. It seems like Leyline and Rest in Peace are the best. And I've already heard people saying that Rest in Peace is too slow, which yeah, is crazy. Turn two. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how they're not going to do a preeminent ban. They're going to wait and see. Something has to happen, right? I mean, it's been one week. It's been one week. This yeah. guy isn't falling yet. This doesn't feel good for Zach to see. Even though there were two Polish people who got that far in the top 32, representation's ah. fun, it's important, but not this way, not like this. So here's my initial question. I know Dave definitely played Bridgevine. I don't remember if Shane did, but what does Hogak change about this deck? An altar. It's altar, altar that I honestly I think changes stuff the most. I don't know why they do that into modern. I don't know. I kind of agree. It was kind of a, a busted card sometimes in at different points in time in the past. It's used for combos in EDH. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's what it is. It's a com- it's a combo engine. You know, like like I said when we were talking about it in the set review, Alter is, I believe, the only no mana non creature sacrifice outlet in in modern right now. And that enough, you know, paired with modern's kind of like want of getting cards in the graveyard in a deck like Bridgevine just works right. So. Um, I think that if it wasn't going to be Hogak, maybe they would have found there would have been an, another big threat that could be kind of a thing. Now, of course, Hogak recurs, and so that's part of what makes it bad still. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot going on there even without that card just because of Altered Dementia. When Bridgevine became a thing and it was winning extremely aggressively, I faced it in a couple leagues a few times, and I was like, this deck is broken and then pretty quickly people learn to adjust people also realize that maybe the consistency of the deck is not quite there i'm not sure if that'll be the case here it feels like we have all these pieces we have a lot of we have redundant pieces we have multiple sacrifice engines so this may be more consistent than we saw in vengevine and it'll prove to be a more of a staying power and then people will be clamoring for bands I'm going to try to hold off and reserve my judgment for a little bit and see if it's Bridgevine 2.0 or see if it's stronger and it looks stronger to me. I mean, my my gut is that it's a stronger version that makes the deck playable. I don't know if I believe that it's going to make it dominant in the way that it was in this particular event or something that people should totally be scared of. I think it would be nice if this was a tierish one deck, but you know, I think that people can hate it out. The big thing that I think people forget to target with this is... Um, getting there's many different ways to get a bridge from below out of your opponent's graveyard and so on the games that aren't totally busted starts there's other things you can do to like make sure that your creatures die and things like that so that they're um or just leave the battlefield so that bridge from below goes away i for one welcome our new necropolis overlords 
Dave, do you think part of the reason why you have some reservations about exactly how powerful this deck is, is that because it's so soft to graveyard hate, like Rest in Peace and Leyline? Because it seems to me like those two cards specifically just totally shut it down. Well, I think it's soft to more than graveyard hate. I think it's soft to things that get rid of Bridge from Below. Personally, okay. in my in my experiences, a lot of times when I was playing the previous version of this, if you didn't get bridge or you couldn't get into your graveyard or somebody trickily managed to make one of their creatures leave the battlefield, so yours got exiled, that it, it went away in all those cases and it made it hard to get your engine going without it. Trixie players. I think I think you still have a lot of game without bridge, even if even if someone surgical bridge. You do, but it's not broken anymore. So it's sort okay. of like you can't you can't put out, you know, 40 zombie tokens or whatever. You can still play Venge Vines and kill people with Hogak. And I think that if there was a um a deck that just did that, people probably wouldn't be that upset about it. You know what I mean? Another yeah. like good dredge style deck that that uses the graveyard to bring back cheap threats, people probably wouldn't be that ups- upset about it. It's more like the hundred power and then I'm gonna mill you to death with altered dementia without even yeah. attacking that that really gets everybody upset. All right. Thanks everyone, especially Shane, for that very thorough explanation of Hogak. We're gonna take a quick break, jam some leagues on MTGO, because we all want to play this deck right now, but you're not gonna know because in like five seconds we'll be back with the dive down mailbag, answering all of your questions about modern horizons. Stay with us. Modern Horizons is here at your local, local, local game store, at your favorite... The one in your basement. (laughs) At your favorite big box retailer, the internet... Wherever you want, is it actually, is it actually it. at the big box retailer? Can I go get packs? No, not yet. Not, not until the Friday. Not until later. Yeah, not until Friday. I didn't think so. Thanks for lying to me, Stan. <laughs> yeah, so. I didn't think so. <laughs> Want to run over to Petco and get one next to the cat toys? <laughs> I'm gonna get mine at Best Buy because there's a lot of those left. I got my first dose of Modern Horizon cards at the pre-release. I have not played any constructed with it yet. I haven't played online or anything. Have you? I have. I played with uh, Pashlik Mons a little bit, and I've enjoyed it. It's a uh, <laughs> kind of start, starting right at the how's, top, Zach. How's your Pashlik Mons doing? Is it healing up nicely? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a twenty CL, luckily, so it's going to be okay in the end. But no, I, I I like it. It's um it's fun. It does exactly what I thought it would, in that it helps my goblins get a little grindier. So it's fun. I've enjoyed myself. I have not enjoyed the card shenanigans though. That card is very good against me, and I'm upset about it. <laughs> No, I haven't played anything with Horizons besides just waiting for my pre-orders to ship. The waiting game, if you will. Yeah, I ordered the rest of the cards for five-color Scred today. Or as our friend Joe has called it, Fred. So, Fred? For Creed. For Creed. <laughs> so to celebrate this new set and also six-month anniversary of the Dive Down podcast, we decided to do something kind of new, which is our very first mailbag episode. We put the word out to our patrons, our fans all over social media to submit questions to us. Even in real life. I asked my mom and she said, what is magic? And I said, it's going to be on a different episode, mom. (laughs) (laughs) 
So like almost all the questions we received for this week were sent in before we all got smashed in the face by Hogak deck. So be prepared for many of our answers to kind of be tempered by the knowledge of this new deck a little bit. But it is pretty unfun to answer every question with that in the back of our minds. So we're going to try to avoid it and think positively. Uh, It's important for us to remember and everyone to remember that at the LGS level, not everyone's just going to be bringing Hogak to the table. And so we're going to try to keep that casual spike mentality and think about what people are really going to be seeing and experiencing. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that even if a deck's super dominant, even with Phoenix at the height, there were three or four Phoenix players at my LGS and Knights usually have anywhere from 20 to 30 people. So it's still an okay amount, but that's not ridiculously oppressive or anything. So although Hogak is ruling the online leaderboards or whatever, things are... For this minute. Yeah, for this moment, this blink in time, the sand in the hourglass... I think things overall are just going to be a little more spicy at your LGS. Three chili peppers. All right, so let's uh, let's get into this first question. So we got from our Patreon, Hunting Guy. He asks, I feel like Modern Horizons has gotten a lot of negative reviews. People are calling it Commander Horizons and all that. Were you all underwhelmed, or is this something that you were all expecting? So... What I kind of initially thought I wanted to do is sort of revisit what Watsi said their goals for the set were. And so kind of the, from the announcement, they said, you know, we wanted powerful new options mixed with flavorful updates for favorite characters, which means that Modern Horizons is going to be a wild ride. The set is full of cards that build up favorite modern strategies, create new ones, and bring plenty of flavor to matches where modern cards are legal. Yeah, and something that I've definitely been mentioning a lot in our group and something that they've mentioned exactly. So this is a quote from the reveal video that had uh, Cassius and Metness in it. We consulted a lot of great minds. What were the safe places to push? What we could bring up a level or into the conversation? We aren't trying to blow up or revolutionize the format. Figure out places we could drop cards and feel confident where the appropriate level of shots to take. Yeah. You know, and, and Cash asked on stream, so did you look at top decks, tier two, and say this this card right here could make that better? And then they said, absolutely. You know, we have the Future Future League play design testing structure. We went we had to build up a second version of that just for this product, which I actually forgot they even said until I reread this. You know, they, they said they wanted to think about the landscape, the decks, the card choices, and deduce where we could take those shots. And so that's something that's stuck in my brain is, you know, think about what shots they wanted to take in this format. And so when I look at Hunting Guy's question, you know, were, were we underwhelmed? This is something that we were expecting. This, to me, is kind of the biggest question of the night for me is when we got that announcement, we did our emergency recording about the announcement. So some of my thoughts, breaking news. You know, I, I was thinking that Modern you really could use a little overhaul. You know, if it, and if there's a bunch of old reprints, it could probably be something that would have a good amount of supply to keep the prices reasonable. And my initial guess was maybe 50% of the cards would see competitive play in modern. It's in some way, shape or form. What do you guys remember thinking back then? What were your expectations? Do you remember? I mean, I I think I said 92% of the cards will will see play initially. (laughs) My expectations were more to do with possible reprints. And I, I sort of fell into the line of thinking that it was going to make modern a little bit more like legacy, including in the cards that people were playing. So I was expecting cards like Baleful Strix and Force of Will and, you know, hoping for Counterspell. And now that that hasn't exactly happened, but, you know, we've had some vague allusions to some of those cards, but in general, the set has been more about the new stuff than the reprints, in my opinion, or at least in my experience so far. 
No, and, and they said that on the on one of the reveal streams when they revealed Mox Taintalite that it they went out of their way to make sure that the reprints weren't more enticing than the new cards. And part of me is actually kind of relieved and, and happy with that. You know, like I'm kind of happy that modern is still a unique format and it's not vintage light. I just worry that what that Hogeek is a sign of times to come because this is a very vintage esque death to me. Just because I feel like Bridge is a, a vintage X card and doing things like, all right, I sacrifice, I mill, I make these zombies in response to that trigger, I do this, is very unmodern or not what I want my modern to be. And I know that that's my personal opinion, and I'm sure there are people that like this and want this kind of magic, but I think they did a good job of not making cards that blatantly do that, but I wonder if there are, are other situations like this that slip through the cracks and we're going to be living through a few months of just super, super modern. I mean, my expectation was sort of in line with what's happened, I feel like, which is basically we look at the spoiler, somewhere between 30 and 40 cards are playable inside Modern, and the rest is limited or fun fun reprints. I think it's hard for Wizards to make a set that does any more than that. You know what I mean? Because it's too disruptive to the format. It also leaves them unable to print another one of these in the future when they want to do this again. And so if they use all of their kind of design ideas space up in, in one go they um you know i think that they they can't really do that yeah i mean but i'm looking i looked at my rating list again and i you know we I had 157 of these cards as heaves just simply stone unplayable and modern you know i had 54 believes that i thought might have some legs and a lot of those were somewhat dicey and 30 sleeves 10 of which were the two land cycles so besides lands, I had 20 cards out of 250 or whatever that I thought looked pretty darn good, right? Yep. And and that doesn't add, and that doesn't add up completely because uh, I left out the believe minuses were just pretty sketch. And so that's, you know maybe you know, if you count the 84 between the believes and the sleeves, it's like a third of the set. That's like 84 cards. But the question I wanted to for me and the question I wanted to ask you guys is if you thought Wizards delivered on their promise for the stated goals of the set. Did do you think that they really pushed anywhere like that was like safe substantially besides some of the obviously good blue cards and like the few mid-range strategy cards we've seen? Like they certainly seemed like they wanted to push some of these sacrifice themes and these graveyard concepts, which didn't really seem safe to me. Like, you know, if they said push safe, I don't I didn't see a lot of safe pushing. I think my biggest takeaway from our last two episodes where we did the sleeve believe heave for the whole set was how many cards seemed geared towards tier two and three decks. So I think for me, whether it be, you know, the vampires, the zombies, the three drop, the white three drop, the ranger, one drop fairy. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that they clearly sat down and thought about what is a good tribal card that can push a tribe, but isn't going to just immediately break it open. Yeah. And for every tribal deck, except for Merfolk. Which is fine. Merfolk's already a perfectly playable deck. Yeah. Merfolk got the blue white changeling. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So I, I think that I think in my mind, what I've seen of the set, I like the set. I'm excited for it. I ended up not buying a box. I bought singles today, but I like it. And so far, I mean, hokey aside, I think I really like what I see, and I like the potential for some neat. LG- I haven't been able to play at an LGS. It's not even legal yet. Um, I won't get to play an LGS for a little bit with new Modern Horizons cards, but I'm excited to see what people are brewing and people are bringing out there. There's a, a gentleman on fairies at the LGS, and I'm excited to see what he's going to do with it. But do you think it felt pushed? 
Like, I think we, I mean, like for those stuff that's like in like the tier three zone, you know, we saw some cards like, oh, this might see play in goblins. It's like, give us a clear playable. I, I think that's hard because a clear playable can sometimes mean a deck is dominant, right? I, I think it's, I think this is a test run and this is sort of like, we talked about, hey, if a card's going to be playable, it's going to be at this mana cost with the vampire and the zombie. So it's sort of, even if it's not there, if they're not aiming for a home run, they're aiming for at least, you know, two RBI or something. Like they're, they're trying really to test it out before they break it. Yeah. I like it. I don't know. I'm a fan. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you're really looking for. What else you're looking for here, Shane? It, I feel like there are cards that were playable that fit into modern that extended some strategies that there's some other ones that are fringy that might get used later. There's some interesting callbacks to things. I mean, it's pretty much exactly how I thought the set was going to turn out. I mean, I did think I was going to get Counterspell. I did think I was going to get some more powerful cards like that, but I get why that, those didn't get reprinted. And they made cards Short to market. replace them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, my my real disappointment, and I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on it, is that it seems so designed around still supporting like a good limited environment, which I understand is important for a variety of reasons. It gets cards into circulation, and it's also a fun reason that people purchase and open boxes, right? And I love limited, so it's good. But I feel like the focusing on the limited archetypes kind of it had to constrain their design decisions, right? And so in a lot of ways, the set feels less than like a Modern Horizons to me and more like a summer set that's designed to handle multiple sales expectations and like be fun to draft for limited people, have commander cards, and have a few obvious chase cards for modern players. And I know it's super hard to make that kind of balance both conceptually and on the execution end of things. And I couldn't have done much better myself at all. But I admit that I have to be somewhat disappointed by this out of the gates. In the past, we were excited to see Inquisition printed as a rare and conspiracy. So I, I, I don't know. Like I think the Somerset comparison, while I get it, is not a hundred percent right or true. Just it is, it is a Somerset. Clearly, it's taking that spot. They talked about taking that spot, but this has so much more power and playability because previously those sets were dedicated to people picking up commander foils and people making new things in Legacy. So I, I feel like I, I think you're right in that they were a little more tender with it and didn't, you know, go as hard as they could have. But I think because they don't want their first summer set to just sort of blow things out of the water. Sorry, their first modern summer set. I mean, in general, I'm not disappointed at all. I think I'm probably going to be as bullish as you're being bearish because I'm really optimistic about the future of the format with this set. And I really think that it's going to mark a turning point coupled with London Mulligan, but really more to do with Modern Horizons because of all the cards that are entering the format because of the set. And what really illustrates this feeling for me is the fact that Ranger Captain of Eos is now seeing play with Death Shadow, which is something Dave mentioned and I was really impressed with. And I didn't fully registered at the time but seeing how you know these two cards that i didn't anticipate going hand in hand together could potentially pave the way for other strategies that are really familiar to us now entering into new colors and and new synergies makes me think that there's a lot of potential and although we might not see 50 percent of the cards see play over time i still can't shake this feeling that this is the beginning of almost a whole new modern I think that's a good bridge into our next question, Stan. And this is from Martin D, who asks, "How do you see the meta shaking out after this set?" So let's let's not focus entirely on Hogak, but we're going to have to a little bit here. <laughs> I just think kind of utter chaos in a really good way. 
Well, so, seriously, uh, I think the floodgates have opened in terms of we, we talked about so many fringe decks getting one or two more playable cards, and I think people are just going to be trying out their jink. I guys, before the podcast, I bought the cards for five color scred. Like I said, that's yeah, nonsense. My man, that's utter nonsense. I'm, so, I'm like, going to want to see this deck list later. By the way, I want to know what made it into five color scred. I am like the Da Vinci of scred, David. <laughs> so just just you. Wait. It's trapped under ice in there or whatever that's called. Yes, it Cry is. Out. I, I, uh, honestly. I'm trapped under trapped ice. ice. Yeah, I know that's not what the card's called. I just wanted you to give you guys a chance to do some Metallica. <laughs> Personally, a big Metallica fan. But I just bought a playset of all the snow cards I thought would be playable from this set. And that's what I did with, you know, so that's what I'm living my life. But I just think that my energy right now is, I think, being felt by a lot of other people who are casual spikes. I think this is really a powerful casual spike set and that all your fringe and goofy and you know your strategies that i'm just missing one more card or i need more reps if it's not a a permanent boost it's a momentary boost where i don't know i feel like anything can happen right now and ho geek aside once again i feel like the world is my beautiful snow-covered oyster i'm excited I just have such a hard time with this question because I think we have a bad uh, understanding of how the modern meta is going to be week over week and trying yeah. to do it yeah, at a moment at a moment like this is really, <laughs> really hard. And so I'm sort of reluctant to give an answer other than to say that I, I believe that um, it kind of what Stan said earlier, that this is a time of change and that we're going to have hair in new places. Exactly. I can't have hair in any new places. It's on all the places already. Um, I'm head to toe covered, boys. The and I just think it's it's really tough. I do think that what we're going to see is a lot of evolution of maybe some of the the archetypes that we've been really used to seeing around all the time, just kind of moving on and becoming new things because they all got new tools. And so um, I think that that's the best I can say about that. But I think that the pillars of the format will continue to be the pillars of the format in the sense that there will be a good linear aggro deck. There will be good graveyard decks. There will be a good control deck. I think that that is what's been good about modern recently and probably what will continue to be interesting. So Dave, I I think what you're talking about there specifically were archetypes and how I want to piggyback a little bit off what you're saying is these linear aggro and control and graveyard decks, I think they might be in slightly different colors than they are now. They might be using slightly different tools than they are now as we move forward with the set. So one of the ways I've been thinking about this question in particular is which decks are going to stay close to the same and which decks might change over time. So for instance, like, I don't know if control actually is going to stay exactly the same. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more Esperless or maybe Soltyless. Likewise, I wouldn't be surprised if humans basically remains the same because the tools that humans got were kind of in line with what it's doing now. Um, likewise, Phoenix I'm, I, and, and Tron for that matter. Like these are decks that didn't get really massively game changing tools, at least in our early interpretations, but you know, seeing how versatile one-drop spells like Death Shadow can be popping up with Ranger Captain makes me think we're going to see a lot of lines and borders blur over time with what these pillars of the format actually look like. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little sad that we couldn't answer this question before we saw like the first big weekend tournament with these cards because I probably would have said like a good amount of experimentation like Zach referred to a little bit ago uh, you know seeing decks even at the tournament level like you know maybe dredge with Ho- hogak maybe like a sacrifice combo deck which unfortunately 
or perhaps fortunately it turned out to be Hogak. Like we, I thought we might see some Urza combo decks, some Loam decks, some Infect. But you know, I think at the LGS level, what your meta is going to shake out depends on your store. Like not like we said, not everyone's going to rush out and get Hogak Vine pieces and just jam them. So people are going to be trying goblins, zombies, assault loam. There are upgraded mid range and control decks. These multicolored snow builds, like Zach's doing. If you mean competitive meta, uh, Martin, then I'm kind of afraid of like a Hogak summer. You know, this might be Hogak decks, decks that try to beat Hogak decks, and maybe some other linear combo decks trying to sort of dodge those other two in some way or going around them in some way. It's a little bit disappointing to me that like this incredibly powerful deck arose essentially instantly that is going to obscure any interesting work that's going to be done for a bit, I think. So Shane, here's a question. Yeah. It sounds like you're a little bit upset that the week one deck isn't the week one deck you expected. Because I know in conversations in private, you and I were both kind of banking on Infect doing the crazy turn two stuff. No, I didn't. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think Infect's going to be good. And I, I was, I had hopes for it showing up, but I didn't think it was going to be like the new tier zero. Like it's not going to be, the, I don't think it was going to be like the busted thing. I just thought it was going to have more play than it does now. And your concern is that Hogak might be just the new tier zero and it might be too busted and it'll be like Phoenix all over again. It's just obscuring people's experimentation, but I think we'll see that play out in the coming weeks. This one comes from a good friend of the show, Emma Partlow, who asks, which tribe will have the best chance of success with the injection of Modern Horizons? And why is it bears? <laughs> <laughs> because they Love finally it. got the bear lord that they needed. A two mana with two, two power I don't toughness. want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. If only it could be bears. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm going to interpret this as not a tribal deck, a good tribal deck getting a further boost, but a tribal deck on the fringes getting pushed into more playability. And I'm going to say for my take, I think Zombies has a good chance. Gravecrawler is a card we talk about frequently as just being a powerful good card. And I think the addition of the two-drop zombie from Horizons, at least at an LGS level, is going to make it a little more playable. I think Zombies are now a little more likely to 4-0 or three split whatever you want to call it i i think this deck has a a little more legs as rotten as they may be <laughs> i mean i think the answer to this question depends if we're talking about like existing tribes or new tribes like i think humans is still going to be one of the top three decks in the format and has like a couple new options we have you know they not, might not necessarily be upgrades but we have unsettled mariner and ranger captain and spirits got good horizon land it got unsettled mariner I'm not sure if most other tribal decks gained like enough speed or disruption to really take the steps to be tournament staples, but I think there's enough fun pieces there to make a lot of them more playable. Like Zach said, we have zombies. I mean, we even have slivers. We talked. We gave a few slivers S S's or maybe just one, but still, like that consolidated their color pie a little bit. It's a really strong, you know, uh, sliver. So why not? I'm going to actually change my answer to slivers. I actually kind of forgot about them, and that's on me. So we're we're gonna pretend that I'm actually good at this game, and I said slivers. Do you guys know that that the the first sliver is like the third most expensive card in the set? Yeah, right now? it's crazy. People want that first sliver. Unsliv. I agree with Shane for the most part that humans remains just as scary as ever. I think humans has always been that deck for me that I'm always like. Don't forget about humans. It's it's secretly amazing, and it'll just blow you out and, and prevent you from casting all of your spells. But to answer Emma's question most specifically, my Dark Horse contender is goblins. And part of that is colored by my limited experience drafting the set. But I think that the goblin matron, which tutors goblins, 
a two-mana Necrotal that you can play at instant speed, and the Sling Gang Lieutenant, which is a free sack outlet that gains and drains your opponent, give that tribe an access of both interaction and consistency and reach that could actually make it like a pretty interesting explosive deck. So that's the one I'm keeping an eye on. Not to mention, we mentioned on a previous episode, they have a red-black tribal land from... Auntie's Hovel. Yeah, Auntie's Hovel. So I don't know. I feel like there might be something in the goblins. Uh, My pick is blue cards. Blue card tribal. (laughs) That's not a tribe. Wizards. I I actually honestly was... In which case, you are the wizard. I actually was considering saying wizards just because I I do think that there's a chance that that two-mana hideaway wizard is pretty good. And there's that new Dreadhorde Ar- Arcanist that's starting to see some play, which is uh, yeah. admittedly not from this set, but it is no. it is uh, from War of the Spark. So I feel like there might be a little bit there, but my a- answer actually is Goblins as well. Pretty much for the same oh, wow. thing that Stan, the same reason that Stan said. I'm just going to crib his answer and repeat it here. There was some interesting decks that I saw posted on Twitter today. Uh, involving Unearth in the Goblin's Shell as well, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting as a way to tutor something back from your graveyard, tutor back a Goblin Matron or something like mm-hmm. that. Matron. Yeah, to kind of tutor up. So I, I, it, it seems like people are starting to get excited about that. I, I hope people who enjoy those kind of strategies get a chance to enjoy it in a new color flavor. Limited edition, summer only. All right, so we're going to jump over to the next question from Zanman, who asks... If you were going to a large modern event right after the release, such as Magic Fest Dallas, which I believe is the weekend uh, that this podcast comes out. D-Town stand up. What do you think you would play? And does the fact that other people might be brewing affect your deck choice? And honestly, if I was going to GP Dallas this weekend, I'd probably try to get my hands on four Leyline of the Void or come up with an equally strong plan to deal with super explosive turn one and turn two graveyard You're decks. You're going to lie, cheat, and steal your way to four Leyline. So that that's not a deck choice per se, but I think you have to kind of acknowledge where the meta was last week if you want to prepare for a tournament immediately after a set comes out. Likewise... <laughs> I would still try to focus on whatever I think gives me the best chance to compete within my preference and experience. So I'm not going to personally pick up a brand new deck that I have no business playing because I have no practice with it and try to spike a tournament with it just because it's got new cards. Listen, son, you ain't got no business playing this deck. Not here. Yeah. I mean, that being said, I think there is, you know, value in trying to adapt the strategies that you have familiar with, either by seeing what other people are doing on MTGO or maybe trying to make some evaluations on your own and testing your own card evaluation skills. But uh, in terms of an actual deck, Stan would probably look at either, is it Phoenix? Because I think it remains pretty strong despite relatively few new additions to it. Honestly, I would also consider Esper Control because I think it's got a lot of game against a wide field, including having main deck graveyard hate while leveraging the powerful new counter spells. Kaya is also amazing. It can play the new Teferi that people are really nervous about. It can also cast Leyland of the Void for its mana cost if you draw it later. Some decks can't. Yeah, that's a big deal. Lastly, I would likely consider whatever the most linear or explosive deck is at my disposal because... You know, whether it's Burn, Infect, or Mono Red Phoenix, I think having a really aggressive practice strategy that wins on turns three or four is usually a decent place to be in modern. Yeah, I mean, Zanman asks, does the fact that other people might be brewing affect your choice? And I think we've seen historically that early on when when people 
are brewing in a new meta. If you enact an aggressive, proactive, linear game plan before people have their answers lined up correctly, if they're trying to do like a mid-range or a control strategy, that you can just go under them. The super fast decks simply run over people experimenting with like these non-optimized and slower sort of synergy-based decks typically before things like hogak but before i saw hogak vine i might have suggested doing infect for that reason and i think still infect still does have the power to get in under a deck like that and a lot of other decks i mean i think i i still bias towards playing decks that i know in large events and playing decks that are fast so i would probably be in the phoenix zone probably mono red phoenix personally just because you know I want to be able to know if I'm running hot or not pretty early in the day. And then if not, I'm going to go into some side tournaments and try some other <laughs> things, you know, and maybe that's where I get out my blue white control deck or something like that. But sure. that's just kind of like the level that I feel like I'm at. I mean, keep in mind, a lot of times we think that, you know, the kind of casual spike person is someone who gets to go to their LGS a good amount or gets to do leagues a good amount, but doesn't get to go to big tournaments all that much. And so I feel like it's hard to want to, to move off the decks that, you know, even though there's so much upheaval in the, in the, uh, the meta right now because of the new cards. Now I will say you definitely want to pack your graveyard hate right now. And I I don't think anybody who has a deck with no access to graveyard hate is going to do that. Great. That's just kind of where my head is at right now. Yeah, I, I think I fully agree with that, and that informs my answer. Of I'm going to, if I was going to a, a tournament even tomorrow, I would bring Mono Red Prison with the Goblin Package, hmm. and I think that's because it is I know it very well, and it is both fast and more or less consistent as long as you're willing to mulligan to four if you have to. I think Cavender Souls is very well positioned right now. We saw that Blue White Control won that tournament we talked about earlier. I think that Chalice can be a little iffy sometimes when people are brewing and have strange mana curves, but one mana is still the spot you want to be in a modern. Like Dave always says, one mana is the spells you want to cast. So if you can get that Chalice on one early, even someone's brew can be upset. Even that Hogak deck we talked about, all, all those cards, Stitcher Supplies, Insulate Neonate, and Fatal Sluting, they're one mana spells. Mm-hmm. So even if I didn't know you were on that, just running up my Chalice on one blindly and going, hey, I hope this works, it usually does. That works there. I also think that there's something diabolical about someone being on a brew and you just going, hey, Blood Moon, not today. There's no brew in here, buddy. Sorry. Yeah, whoopsie. Zach, do you think that a deck like Red Prison is flexible enough and casts a wide enough net with its you know lock pieces and prison pieces to handle all the variables that you might face in a in you know early on with a lot of people experimenting? I do because you have Blood Moon, chalice and bridge and i think what it really comes down to is knowing what lock piece you need and it's sort of the thing where there are some games where you would rather have bridge than chalice or blood moon and it's really you know knowing games two and three if what you're mulliganing for and sometimes there's a hand where you can have a turn one blood moon and that doesn't matter in that matchup so i think it does cast a wide enough net but it really comes down to the pilot skill and ability to recognize the matchup cool plus cavern souls is a really good card well it's also good against chalice Hey guys, if you were to play a brand new deck because you're feeling brave and not one you're familiar with and you wanted to try to surprise your opponents with new cards, do you have a go-to? Five color snow, baby. Like a totally new deck? I'd be playing Hogak. Does that count? Hogeek. Is that new enough? I mean, I have some experience playing Bridgevine, but that's what I would be playing if I was trying something new. Wait, Dave, you've played Bridgevine before? I have. Hmm. I haven't heard that in this podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, probably like a Thopter Sword type thing, even though I have none of those cards. 
but you like mirrored and besieged so much i came into three grand recently yeah, i suddenly had two thousand extra dollars and yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna play urza yeah i mean i think that the other thing i would say is i would look for the best shell with karn i guess i mean it kind of feels like right now the the meta and again we're not trying to predict the meta like in the last question but it feels like you're either playing teferi time raveler or hogak or karn or some combination of those or ones apparently there's or humans or humans yeah sorry humans is the other one that that feels like it's out there a lot too and, or thing in the or, ice or phoenix yeah thing in the ice i'm playing car so I, I feel like you kind of want to pick the best one of those and so maybe i if i had access to all the money in the world i would pick a Karn deck just to try it out as well but can i tell you what i like the first deck that made me go ooh, and it ooh? may surprise you that it's not a blue deck is it a red deck it sure is. Back off, Warchild. One of our patrons posted this Skelemental Blast Red Black deck that Skelemental. uses Skelemental. four Skelementals, four Unearth, a bunch of Hand Disruption, Lightning Bolts, <laughs> four Thoughtseize, four Inquisition, four Colgan's Command. Honestly, Let's go. I really want this deck to be a thing because this <laughs> looks like so much fun for me. The entire time your opponent is going, "What's happening? What are you doing? What, what's happening right now?" This is an early contender for my sleeve believe heave pick when we do that episode. But that's got at least has to win once or twice to do so. So I know. I really hope it does. I really, <laughs> really wanted to. Guys, I went O ten, but I bought it in paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our next question is from Chris B. Following Modern Horizons, which archetypes do you think might have gotten just the right push to come back from fringe playable to the competitive scene again? I personally want to believe in Cabal Therapist for some Bridgevine variant. Well, maybe not quite <laughs> yet, Chris. Although I definitely will try to make Modern oh, Land Loam competitive. I actually think that I would throw... Uh, Loam would probably be one of the decks that I would pick off of that, just with Renin 6 and some of the other tools that that, that, that deck got, including the Cycling Lands and things like that. So um, that, uh, that creature enchantment thing that I was off of. Yeah. But Zach, what do you think? I think that maybe Soul Sister slash Martyr Proc, another not exactly the same deck, but sort of mono white life gain or mono white creature based strategies got a boost. I know that the Ranger card is seeing play apparently in Death Shadow. So, you know, who knows what I know? But I think these decks are cool and competitive, and I've seen people furrow at LGS with them. And I think they, of course, have bad matchups, but they can run Rest in Peace, which is a good card. And white has, you know, quote unquote, the best sideboard cards in modern. So I think this creature-based life gain plan, it just bumped up a little bit. I don't know if it's pushed into tier one, quote-unquote, but I feel like anything that tutors is more consistency and just having a nice little curve ending at three is beautiful as well. Multiband. I think a deck like Infect is prime for people who liked Infect to make a little comeback. I also think devoted combo decks are something that I'm keeping my eye on very closely. Oh, man. I think yeah, I forgot about that deck from the weekend. I lost to it twice in my league. Did you play the the new uh, one with Karn the Great Creator that I saw people talking on SCG, Zach? I sure did. Ooh. I sure did. And one time my opponent searched out a walking blister when I had a Karn Great Creator out and they couldn't kill me with it, but I bought myself a turn and then they just won anyway with that. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... They just swung with it. You can still attack with walking blister. <laughs> what? Turns out. I didn't know it does that. There's a lot of different builds of the devoted combo decks running around out there. And I think these various new tutors, like the finale from War of the Spark, Ella Damry's Call from Horizons, uh, things like Ella Give Damry. Things like <laughs> Giver of Runes. 
uh, might also add to some resiliency of the deck if it needs to go that angle. Um, and like we just talked about, there's that new build that I saw on SEG on camera this weekend. Seems pretty promising, and that didn't even have any of the Horizon cards. So that's something that I think might be back on the top tables again. There's a lot of stuff you can do with infinite green mana. I kind of feel like I answered this question a few times in the other questions, so I don't want to spend a, a ton of time on it, but maybe something like Goblins. It, you know, if Hogak wasn't a thing, I would have still bet on Bridgevine. Yeah, bet on Bridgevine. Yeah. I mean, sure. I the last one I would say is I do like this Archmage Charm Young Pyromancer vibe going on quite a bit i I i'd love it if that was the thing so maybe maybe just having a modal counter spell slash draw two is enough to make a deck that relies on a bunch of spell casts to uh bring it back a little bit dave what if i told you the best part of that card was stealing your opponent's permanence would you believe me i mean i think we've all kind of felt like maybe that's the case although i think they're probably equally good I am going to lose a game because someone takes my Marriott Lage token. I'm going to get the token, send you guys a screenshot, and then a minute later, send another screenshot of it hitting me. <laughs> they do and take it at instant speed, so they can take it on your turn and then hit you with it on their turn. So, yeah. Declare attacks. Okay. Uh, four blocks. I take it. No summoning oh. sickness. Yoink. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, this is a non Patreon question. This is from the Lord of Hats, who is a Something Awful fan. So what do you think is the most notable reprint that didn't happen? Oh, man, who has the hottest take on this one? I don't know if I have a hot take. I I, I don't know. I have the most, I, the most obvious one, so I'll I, do that. I, I, go ahead. And that is Counterspell. But you got so many blue cards. Okay. I know so I got blue. a lot of blue cards, but I really wanted to be able to cast Counterspell again in my favorite format. It's my favorite card. Would have liked to have a chance to cast in my favorite format. I think that the message is, it was really interesting to see kind of how many people in the kind of pro community or the magic kind of writer community were sort of all over the place on whether it was too powerful or not powerful enough. And then as soon as they announced it wasn't going to happen, everybody was just sort of like, oh yeah, it's too powerful. I, I think that it probably mm. is too powerful and um, it just is what it is. But um, that's the one that I felt like was really down to the wire. People were thinking it was going to happen and then it just didn't. Yeah, I mean, and then they elaborated on why it, it, it's that, you know, that it was too powerful, but that more so it would overshadow any other counterspells they printed in the set. So if you're printing counterspell, then all these other, that's what they said in the, when they revealed Mox Tantalite, that same video, that if you're printing counterspell, all these other counterspells that you're printing that are cool for modern, besides the force, they're, they're not going to be run because you can just run counterspell instead. Yeah. I don't so think that's necessarily true with regard to well, Archmage's charm. So are you calling Wizards a liar, Stan? Are you calling Mark Rosewater a liar? I personally, no, I'm not calling anyone a liar, but I didn't think that excuse was adequate for my taste. That's fair. I think it's totally fair, by the way. Honestly, I think the only counter spells it cuts out are like Mana Leak and Logic Knot. And, you know, uh, they mentioned maybe Prohibit by name Pierce. when they talked about it. So, <laughs> you know, I think Archmage Charm, Cryptic Command, even Remand would still all see play. Not Remand, no. It's kind of like when I when we had a review episode and I mentioned there, how many different ways does Blue need to be drawing cards in some weird way? right for and four did, for right. four mana yeah. at instant yeah. speed like so if you simply gave like blue ancestral recall and i'm not necessarily equating counter spell to that but they would just completely invalidate all the other ways and weird ways blue has to be drawing cards out of its deck and so counter spell is just so clearly 
priced well and easy for the deck to cast that it just sort of invalidates a lot of those different ideas of what a counterspell can be in modern. I buy it. I'm disappointed, but I buy it. My card's pretty simple. It's just Vindicate. One white black sorcery, destroy target permanent. It's fair, it's powerful in a com- color combination that could use a push, one of their stated goals. You know, not getting Vindicate in the format really did surprise me. I don't think it's overpowered in any real way. I mean, we have Maelstrom Pulse, which exists in black green, and that can easily be a two for one or more. And it's not like land destruction is something that Watsi has been avoiding putting into magic. So I think the flexibility, no, sir. I think the flexibility of indicates kind of a fair trade off for the one for one nature of it. And it's a sorcery. Like this is a totally safe card. Right. Not that I would have wanted to see it, but I think that the absence of containment priest is noteworthy. Maybe it was, they were worried about humans getting too strong or something. I, I just feel like it was a very sort of obvious shoe in, and it was sort of shocking that it wasn't revealed at any point. I'm sure that there's some sort of internal memo and they played it out and it was too oppressive or maybe they're saving it for something else. Who knows? But its absence here is very noted and very felt. For sure. For me, it was Wirewood Symbiote. I think elves did not get (laughs) a super obvious tool. You know, it might be a land. It might be an unearth card. Lanawar tribe. Yeah. You you didn't enjoy those three elves in a trench coat? I just don't (laughs) think that's an elves card. You know, until proven otherwise, I think that's for a different deck. For another show, Richard did some math for me. And, like, he pointed out that Monogreen Devotion can make just, like, 10, 12 mana with that and a Nykthos and, like, a couple other cards on turns three or four. So that card is busted. Probably not an elf card. And Wirewood Symbiote would have been, I think, a reasonably powered reprint that could have maybe turned Modern Elves into a slightly different combo shell than it is now. Plus, you know, an obvious shoe in for the elves deck. So maybe I'm undervaluating. Maybe I'm under evaluating the power of the Wirewood symbiote because I've never played it in Legacy. It's broken in Commander. So, so let's quickly touch on this one. We kind of mentioned a little bit of it earlier, but Craig asks, why do you think they went so light on including pre-existing cards in Modern Horizons? And why do you think they went so heavy on printing brand new cards? And this is kind of like my most negative sort of lens on answering this question is I think that this set was really heavily repurposed from like their Time Spiral 2 concept. And I don't I really don't think that even from a early point that this was seen as Modern Horizons. So I think this concept of reprints were more afterthoughts versus the original concept of like this Time Spiral 2 idea. And so what I can imagine is that they were either afraid of the concept of putting powerful old tools into the format. Like everyone was initially thinking counterspell, wasteland, force of will. And so they made it, maybe played it a little bit more safe with things like factor fiction. And they probably just wanted to generate new card ideas or maybe use old card ideas they had in the, their card file. And so it's more interesting for them to flex their card design skills than to d- give us like a pile of maybe, you know, 25%, 30% reprints from the olden days. Yeah, and it's also just a great way to sell packs, which is my long and short answer to Craig's question. At the end of the day, they're more likely to get people to buy cards if they're new cards that they can't get from their old shoebox. I think another part of this is wanting the format to be distinct from Legacy and Vintage in that there's not the same cards that are in both. And I think that's, that's hard because it's something like Force of Will too broken. I don't know. Maybe it's not, but they don't want it to be legacy light they want modern to be its own distinct thing so i think that comes with the price obviously but i think you can't have too many of the decks being like 40 similar cards i think that's a good point yeah good point zach thank you 
So we got a quick one from a friend of the show, Joe C. What would it take for Fallen Shinobi to be modern playable? So I have an answer for this one. I think it would actually have to be a different card with totally different text, a different CMC, and a different creature type. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's too expensive for what it does. There are similar cards, and it's the sort of thing where you're relying on your opponent's deck to give you value. And if you're playing against me, sometimes you hit two rituals off that, and that's not going to do anything for you. I mean, isn't Thief of Sanity doing something similar to this that gets you like better selection and for less work and also gets evasion? Yep. Easier to cast because it's only or one color. You can use those cards whenever you want instead of like you don't have to use them that turn. We're so sorry, Joe. I, I have an answer. I think it would take the printing of the long-awaited Mox Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> Mox Ninja too. Yeah. So what, what would Mox Ninja be like? Swap this Mox with an un, like a, an untapped land in you your control. Hand. It would be tap to gain tap to gain one life or tap or two uh, mana to activate a ninjutsu ability. Mm. Mm. Ninja ramp. Hey, if you're drafting Modern Horizons, and I suspect a fair number of our listeners are, this is a great limited card. So if you're a oh, ninja, yeah. it's a bomb. Take this card. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I do want to get back to Zach's point, though. Like, why aren't cards like this modern and playable? Where like you're stealing stuff from your opponent's deck, and it's that so many cards are part of an engine and they're not kind of uniquely right. powerful. Like that's kind of something that's really powerful and standard. Right, because so many of the standard playable cards are just powerful on rate. They're good creatures. They're stuff you want to cast. But in modern, a lot of the cards are situational and are built to power the deck's concept rather than just be individually powerful. Yeah, sure. We talked about Serum Visions being run as a four of lately, and you know, even Mana Morphos isn't that great to hit with that. It's fun to draw a card, but that's not the gas you want. I'm so excited that I got my opponent's Ancient Stirrings. Yeah, exactly. I know targets. Your turn. Our next question comes from Craig. I'm not sure if this is a different Craig or the same Craig as the previous Craig question, but Craig asks, does Wizards intentionally print good graveyard engines for modern, or does it just kind of happen by accident? Dave, you've been in the game longer than us. Do you think this stuff happens on purpose or by accident, typically? Boy, it's a gra- it's a hard question. I mean, I think that they know how powerful the graveyard is as a zone of play. Right. Like if you order the the zones of play that there are in magic, it's basically the battlefield, your hand, the graveyard. And those are all top at the top for like where you get to do stuff. And then followed after that is your library and things like that. So I think that the graveyard is just a really obvious and flexible design space. And so people come up with a lot of mechanics that either feed cards in the graveyard or have a drawback where a card ends up in the graveyard and it gets turned into a positive. So, I mean, I don't know if I think it's intentional so much as it's sort of inevitable in some ways mm, yeah. that, that it's just a characteristic of magic that people don't see the first time they, they play the game that the graveyard is always going to be there as a possibility to be used as a resource for different things. Yeah. I think, you know, I, it's probably both, right? Like sometimes it's on purpose, sometimes it's by accident. I think overlooking the potency of Hogak and Alter, it is kind of silly with the testing that they said happened. It's insane to see how quickly we're able to build around this this card combination and if no one in testing saw this. So I would say they didn't do that on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty presumptuous to say that no one in testing saw this. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> because <laughs> all these pro players, Paul Chion had no idea this would ever yeah, happen. Yeah, and Melissa Del Toro and, you know, all, all those well, people. We, we don't even know folks. who tested it. But, I mean, like, if like it's this one seems this one seems pretty spicy. 
I think that they think it, it is not that bad. Yeah, there's no way they didn't know. I, I think maybe they didn't expect it to catch on this big and that it's not overall that good once people know how to play against it. We'll see. Who knows? Maybe in two weeks we'll be just begging them through choked back tears to ban it. Yeah, honestly, I think it is on purpose that they do this. And I don't know if this is the direction that the format took naturally or whether this is the design from Watsi, but I feel like in 2019 especially, Modern has really become a graveyard matters format such that even the decks that don't rely on the graveyard have to have potent answers to graveyard decks in their sideboards so for me a most the most recent example of this is the two humans decks that appeared in the top eight of the scg invitational that happened over the weekend both had three copies of graveyard hate cards and because graveyard hate can be colorless it's super ubiquitous anyone can run some version of it I think they're okay with making powerful graveyard synergies as just another access and opportunity to design interesting mechanics or cards. So you what you you think legacy is the interaction on the stack format and modern is the busted graveyard stuff format? I mean, I don't I don't play legacy, but I think that's kind of what modern is about more often than not. Shane, discarding cards can be good. Oh, I do like that aspect of that though. I think legacy is the fast mana format, by the way. But it's mm, a good point. Mm, yeah, you can get Chalice on two on turn one pretty consistently in Legacy. So yeah. hey, so hey, so hey, so hey. And finally, we're going to wrap this up with a question from Kiowa H, who asked, "What new cycle of cards would you guys like to see in the next Horizon set?" I personally like to see a new Leyline cycle. And for me, what I want most is fetchable snow lands. I'm sure that there's a reason they didn't do this. I or God, I hope there's a reason. Fetchable snow duels. Yes, fetchable, no, even fetchable snow non-basics. It doesn't have to be duels. Fetchable snow non-basics. Any any sort of snow land I can get that has more text on it than just a mana symbol. That or a dragon that would be too good for standard, but not too good for modern. I think there's a sweet space there. But really what I'm looking for is stuff that can beef up my decks a little more without being oppressive. So would there be a cycle of dragons like the... I would love, love, love a cycle of dragons. Yeah, the last time we had one of those was like, what, dragons of Tarkir? Uh, yeah, and before that, Kamigawa. And I think Kamigawa was the first. Mm, there's a cycle of dragons in Mirage, actually. Do not at me, anybody, especially not you, Dave. <laughs> but there is. Zach, what if that cycle of dragons had four amazing bombs, but the worst one was in red? I mean, that's fine. I, I'm fine going two colors for it. We've talked about how Sarkon is so close to being playable, and even a dragon in black or green would be fine. Do not blue or white, do not at me. <laughs> so I took this question as an opportunity to kind of think outside the box, uh, and specifically with cards that aren't actually a cycle to begin with. And my answer was inspired by the Bond cycle from War of the Spark. And I think what I would kind of like to see are more Helix cards in the spirit of Lightning Helix. So ideally two mana spells in a variety of guild colors that blend powerful effects at a good rate. I think that could be fun. Like Big Bolt, Tar Creature gets plus three, plus three and bolts something. Sure, print it. <laughs> so uh, it's funny, Stan, my answer is kind of close to yours. I'm, I don't super love trying to speculate card design other than yes, for, it's hard for to do goofs basically there's lots of people who enjoy that as part of their interaction with magic but it's not really like i don't think i'm that great at it but there's two things that came to mind one is i'm a big fan of charms and always have been ever since the original cycle of charms 
So I think, you know, I've always liked charms ever since the first ones, ever since they were in, um, you know, visions and, uh, Mirage, I think had, had some charms as well. So I would kind of love to see a series of charms that completes the arch mages charm cycle. So like triple colors, triple color, monocolor, powerful ones that are very color committing. So I don't know if it would be a whole cycle of double ones that did something lower effect or a whole cycle of triple ones that kind of have the same kind of vibe as Archmage's charm. But I feel like that would be pretty cool to see a completed cycle there. Oh, totally. I mean, it's like you're reading my mind, man. Like card, card design doesn't come quickly to my brain either. So it was challenging. So I was thinking about something really flexible. And so I thought about the commands Mm -hmm. and so, and specifically some commands that would have both proactive and reactive options to give them more playability. Cause right now we have the single color and the allied color commands. And, you know, we see a lot of charms, like you said, but they don't see a ton of play. So they're probably pretty hard to design more than I imagined, but give me some enemy color commands, like just fill out the rest of that cycle make them do interesting things, at least have some sort of flexibility and playability in a lot of situations. And that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, basically completing Kaya's Guile. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, something like, yeah, give, it, give me a couple good options and put it in color combinations that don't have access to commands, and I think it'd be cool. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys, though, about like cycles is should they be balanced? Like I was lamenting the force cycle this past week and weekend and kind of how underpowered the red and white force feel. And even the black force feels like it could have like maybe exiled or something. I think the concept of the cards is really cool, but the execution gets a little bit frustrating to me. Do you think that cycles like this should strive for equal power, equal playability? I know Dave, you had some thoughts on this. I don't think they should personally. Yeah, why not? Well, I just think that, you know, there are different set designs and different opportunities that make different sense uh, for different colors at different moment in time. And I think that if they tried to hold themselves to some kind of absolute standard of playability for whenever they employed a mechanic like this, I think that um, they would try stuff like this a lot less often, which means that Mm. we would lose out on the idea of the kind of cyclical design of magic in general is something that we get to experience. So I I just think it's probably a net negative for them to try to make them too similar. And so what they should do and what they do do mostly is, you know, (laughs) do do (laughs) he said it again. Um, He did it again. So what they should do and what they do in general is they, um, I think they find a couple that are really needed effects and then kind of fill it out, fill out the cycle from there for things that seem fun or interesting for people to try and just kind of let it go with there. Yeah, good point. I mean, especially like in a standard set where it's like if, if one color already has some power that they know is going to exist there, they might want to be building up one color or color combination while not making another one overpowered. Yeah, and sometimes they're flavorful, right? Like the force cycle going into into Modern Horizons is kind of flavorful in a meta way because it's a set that doesn't have a story, but the story is all of our implicit knowledge of magic cards. And so introducing a cycle of cards that were forces is just kind of a fun, cool thing for them to have in the set, even if they knew that not all of them were necessarily going to be playable. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I can really add to your question, Shane, is that Although Wizards of the Coast isn't a game design company that is necessarily bound by precedent, we don't have really any precedent where every card in a cycle 
you know, with the exception of lands, I guess, was really strong and broken and playable. Like I'm struggling to think of a cycle where every single one sees equal amount of play. These are awesome questions, uh, everybody. This, these are great to answer, cool to think about, gave us a nice uh, week of just talking to each other and talking back to the listeners. Honestly, it's it's really nice and just uplifting to have a good community of people who have really thoughtful, nice discussion like this. All these questions were just really good, fun to answer questions, and this was just a really nice experience for me. Yeah, we really appreciate all of our patrons who submitted questions, all of our fans and friends outside of Patreon who tweeted and emailed us, commented on Reddit, used the public Patreon poll to engage with us there. So thanks again to everyone who took our call to action and acted upon it. But before we go, I guess this is a unique opportunity to tease the next episode where we're planning to have another special guest, which we haven't had in a while. And it's a really cool magic personality that I think many of our listeners are familiar with. We don't want to share their name yet to build a little bit of anticipation. But before we record that interview, we are going to put another shout out on Twitter and Patreon for our listeners to submit questions to this guest. So keep an eye on those. And you might have an opportunity to ask a question that will appear on next week's episode as well. I'm very excited for this guest. It's going to be a really good time. There's going to be some laughs, some jokes, some brews. Maybe not some brews. Maybe maybe some brews. I'm also excited, and I'm bummed that I'm going to miss it because this guest is going to be standing in for me on my week off. I don't even think I'll be there. Well, you don't get a stand-in. I get replaced by a famous person. Understand? Oh, okay. <laughs> Got it. Changed his destitute on the street. I'm just a ghost. Ooh. It's going to be a regular old Zach Stan throwdown. Octagon. Three men enter. Two men leave. We might still do breakdown with Shane. Maybe. God, if you make me. If he behaves. <laughs> oh, behave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out on Friday. And if you'd like to support our show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down, all one word. You can also find us on Twitter at the dive down, as well as email us, thedivedown at gmail.com. Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and send us your questions! You don't love Limited. You're being, think, you're being disingenuous. That's not true. How do I not uh, love Limited? I play Limited. Me and Shane are the louts of Limited. Every time I draft with you, you're like, Ugh. No, that, that's, no, that's just Shane all the time. Two like, twos. I drink Limited. <laughs> Shane, if you love Limited, name every pack one pick one you've ever made. <laughs>